0: Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Since 1993, we've given 10% of our profits to efforts that help protect and restore the earth, from supporting organic farmers to funding Glacier Research Education. Learn more at stonyfield.com. We're proud to support Living on Earth, and hope you will too. Donate at LOE.org.
1: From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, Nature and Nurture, decoding the
2: genetic and environmental origins of autism. Compared to folks in the general population, kids with autism had about twice as many very severe gene-debilitating mutations. And these errors could disable that copy of the gene.
3: I think that most cases of autism have some genetic susceptibility factors... But only in combination with environmental factors do you actually get autism.
1: Also, breeding a potential
4: disaster. The best way to develop a resistant strain is to treat bacteria with low doses of antibiotics. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we're doing with subtherapeutic use in farm animals.
1: We'll have those stories and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
5: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. According to the latest figures from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in the United States, one child in 88 has autism. The incidence has been rising steadily and rapidly, up 80% in just a decade. Baffling researchers who have long believed that genetics play an important role in autism. But they lacked hard evidence, until now. Three independent studies in the latest edition of Nature, for the first time, link genetic mutations to autism. Professor Mark Daly is lead author of one of the studies. He's chief of analytic and translational genetics at Massachusetts General Hospital.
2: The types of studies that we're doing now are things that really weren't even possible two to three years ago. So they've been made possible by remarkable advances in our ability to sequence the human genome. So in this particular case, we sequenced the genomes of kids with autism and their parents. And we were targeting a very specific type of mutation, that is mutations that arise spontaneously, and we were able to detect in each of the kids with autism whether or not they had specific mutations. A mutation,
1: basically a misspelling in the
2: DNA. Exactly, exactly. So this is, you know, all of your 3 billion letters of DNA are inherited from your parents. Occasionally there's a spelling error, and these errors, if they occur in an important protein-coding gene, could disable that copy of the gene.
1: So what did you find specifically?
2: So we found that compared to folks in the general population, the kids with autism had about twice as many very severe gene-debilitating mutations. And these are still very, very rare events. The vast majority of, of individuals and the majority of kids with autism don't have these specific mutations. But the fact that there were more of them in the kids with autism allowed us to pinpoint very confidently a small number of genes as genuine risk factors for autism
1: autism is considered a spectrum of disorders yes what percentage of autism do you think the genes and the mutations that you've found do you think are responsible for autism
2: probably just about 1% from these particular genes so we've identified in these studies three or four genes that have highly confident statistical evidence behind them these mutations while they're very severe are found only in about 1% of the kids that we've studied and, you know, that, that leads us to extrapolate in a way that's, you know, consistent with previous studies that there are actually hundreds of genes that contribute to autism risk.
1: Can you test for this genetic
2: mutation? There's not a clinical test that's been developed yet. I think with some subsequent follow-on studies, these tests can ultimately evolve into additional diagnostics. You're a geneticist? Yes. Nature, nurture. When it comes to
1: autism, what percentage do you think is genetic and what do you think is
2: environmental? It's not an easy question to give a single answer to. I think it's clear that, you know, a genes by itself do not cause autism in the way that a single gene causes Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis. Now, It's hard at this point of our evolution in genetics, since we've discovered only a small fraction of the responsible genes, but that doesn't preclude the potential for very, very important environmental factors from also contributing to a a large majority of cases. But ultimately, both of those lines of research, the genetics will be discovering more and more risk factors. The epidemiology will get more and more confident observations of risk factors. And these two things will then begin to fit together in a much more sensible whole picture. Professor Daly, thank you so much for coming in. Hey, it's been a pleasure to be here, Bruce. Thank you. Mark
1: Daly is chief of analytic and translational genetics at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Well, it's taken decades and billions of dollars to find these first genetic links to autism, but the research only explains a small number of cases. Dr. Irva Hertz-Picciotto is investigating possible environmental causes. She's principal investigator at the UC Davis Center for Childhood Autism Risks from Genetics and the Environment, or CHARGE. Dr. Hertz-Picciotto says research into autism and the environment needs more attention.
3: You know, I think people are starting to wake up that the genetics is not giving us the answers that were promised. And, in fact, the money has been probably somewhere around 20 to 1 going to genetics versus what's been going to environment. So I think the small amount of money that's been invested in the investigation of environmental factors is starting to really pay off.
1: So you're the principal investigator for the study called CHARGE, the Childhood Autism Risks from Genetics and the Environment which proportion do you think is genetics and which do you think is
5: environment?
3: Well, let me put it this way. I think that it's mostly both. I think that most cases of autism have some genetic susceptibility factors, but that those susceptibility factors are not enough to actually cause outright autism by themselves. That only in combination with environmental factors... Uh, do you actually get autism?
1: Well, let's look at some of those environmental factors that you studied in this 10-year-long study that you've got, and it's ongoing.
3: Okay, well, we, we have a few findings I think are quite important. One of them was that women who reported that they took their prenatal vitamin supplements before they actually conceived, those women appeared to be at almost a 40% reduced risk Of having a child who later developed autism.
1: What's in the vitamins, do you think, that's maybe preventative here?
3: Well, it may be the folic acid, which is the amount that you get from diet is much less than those prenatal supplements, not the regular multivitamins. These are the specifically prenatal supplements that have 800 uh, milligrams. And That dose may be what is needed at that time period in development, or at least for some women. What we also saw in that study was that the risk was modified by either the mother's or the child's genes that pertained to the metabolism of folic acid. So if they had a high risk or inefficient metabolism of the folic acid, then they were at substantially higher risk.
1: So, mother's prenatal nutrition, what's another environmental factor you studied?
3: We took a look at the exposure to air pollution, and the way we approached it was we looked at where the homes were, where the mom resided at the time of her pregnancy, and we linked that to the roadway system in California. And then we said, where's the closest freeway to that woman's house? And if she lived within 300 meters, approximately a quarter of a mile, of a freeway, there was a higher risk that her child would develop autism.
1: Well, so far we've been talking about moms. What about dads? Do they play a role in this that may be not genetic?
3: Well, there is belief that dads could play a role for sure. Um, We looked at the occupations of uh, actually both moms and dads, and we did find that uh, exposure to solvents, may be associated with a higher risk for autism. And so there are a lot of chemicals out there that uh, have potential neurotoxicity. Pesticides, I will cite, because pesticides are designed to damage the nervous system in some lower species. You know, it might be rats and gophers, or it might be insects. But there is no systematic testing starting in the prenatal gestational period to look at neurodevelopment? And that's the critical question here. So we don't have a system to protect us from chemicals that get introduced.
1: Dr. Irva Hertz-Picciotto studies autism and the environment at UC Davis. Since 2006, there has been a mass die-off of honeybees in the United States. The same thing was seen in Europe going back to the 1990s. And while the die-off has a name, Colony Collapse Disorder, the cause has puzzled scientists. But there have been clues that one of the world's most commonly used pesticides plays a role in the destruction of up to 90% of honeybee hives. Alex Liu, a professor of environmental exposure biology at Harvard University, conducted a series of field experiments using the popular pesticide imidacloprid. Like commercial beekeepers who feed their colonies with high-fructose corn syrup, Professor Liu dosed his experimental hives with corn syrup laced with minute amounts of the pesticide. He says it's the imidacloprid, given over time, that's causing colony
5: collapse disorder. We found that this pesticide called immunocloprid is capable of collapsing honeybee colony in a sublethal dose manner. So it's basically the smoking gun. It is because the steady design that we uh, that we created uh, eliminate other possible risk factors. We found fifteen out of the sixteen pesticide-treated hive collapse, whereas control hive remained alive, except for one.
1: of the experimental colonies fed high-fructose corn syrup laced with sublethal doses of imidacloprid over time died. Professor Liu says the onset of colony collapse disorder coincides with the introduction of the pesticide in the U.S. and Europe. He says it's the chemical residue found in corn syrup produced using genetically modified plants that's killing bees. Besides corn, imidacloprid is sprayed on 140 food crops, including potatoes and rice and is commonly found in pet flea collars. The U.S. EPA is an ongoing study. Professor Liu's results are published in the latest edition of the Bulletin of Insectology. Just ahead, here's a switch turning to computers to keep us safe from viruses and diseases. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, too much of a good thing down on the farm can make you sick at home. But first, this note on emerging science from Mary Bates.
6: Listen, it sounds like a twittering bird, but it's actually a mouse. Researchers at the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna analyzed the sounds made by male house mice. They found that the males sing complex ultrasonic songs to send messages to females. The scientists recorded and lowered the pitch of the songs to make them audible to human ears. They then analyzed parameters like duration and frequency. They discovered male house mice courtship songs contain signatures that set the singer apart from other males. The songs of siblings were more similar than the songs of unrelated males, so a female mouse can tell if an interested male is related to her, which could help avoid inbreeding. House mice calls are very different from those of inbred laboratory mice. Male house mice sing songs with more syllables and in higher frequency ranges than their laboratory cousins. This suggests a genetic component to mouse song, just as there is in bird song. Mouse song might share other characteristics of bird song, In some bird species, the males with the most complex songs attract the most mates. Next, researchers want to test female mice to see what musical flourishes they prefer. Mice appear to be simple, squeaky animals until scientists figured out how to listen to them. It turns out, mice live in a world alive with the sound of music. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Mary Bates.
1: Penicillin has saved more lives than any other single drug. The world's first antibiotic was discovered in 1928, but it wasn't until the 1940s on the battlefields of World War II that penicillin was first used widely to treat infections.
5: Gangrene, from which millions have perished in past wars, has been conquered by the miracle of penicillin. Scientists are manufacturing this wonder drug in enormous quantities to meet the demands of the Allied armies on every front.
1: Over the years, scientists have created many different antibiotics, but it's been an ongoing war between the powerful drugs and bacteria that can evolve and become resistant. And one of the main battlefields today, farms, where antibiotics are routinely fed to animals. Living on Earth's Jessica Elise Kern reports. In
7: 1951, the Food and Drug Administration approved the use of antibiotics in animals after seeing how effective the drugs were in treating human infections. But by the 1970s, the agency started to worry about bacteria resistance and decided to halt the drug's non-medical use.
4: The more you use antibiotics, the more antibiotic resistance is likely to occur. And almost 80 percent of antibiotics used in the U.S. are used on
7: livestock. That's Avinash Karr, a lawyer with the Natural Resources Defense Council. In March, Carr won a case in federal court against the FDA. He charged the agency with failing to enforce their 1977 ban on the non-therapeutic use of penicillin and tetracycline in farm animals.
4: We believe they caved into pressure from industry, and they should have been acting long ago. They say they recognize that this is a risk to human health, but we haven't seen them step forward and put the health of American citizens first.
7: Antibiotics are given to farm animals to treat illnesses, much like in humans. But it's the non-medical uses that the NRDC says are the problem. When farmers put antibiotics in feed and water to keep diseases at bay and to make animals grow larger, faster.
4: They're designed to save lives and not fatten pigs and chickens. And yet we're using more antibiotics on healthy farm animals than on sick people. You're not treating a disease but basically trying to compensate for crowded and unsanitary conditions.
7: On industrial farms, animals can live by the hundreds, often thousands. In such crowded conditions, if one chicken gets sick, there's a high chance illness will spread. So low doses of preventative drugs are given to the entire flock. Glenn Morris is a physician and the director of the Emerging Pathogens Institute at the University of Florida. He says it's these low doses that are the problem
4: the best way to develop a resistant strain is to treat bacteria with low doses of antibiotics low enough that you know you aren't immediately killing the bacterium but you are providing selective pressure for the appearance of resistant strains so unfortunately that's exactly what we're doing with subtherapeutic use in farm animals
7: morris says the numbers of antibiotics in the environment are wreaking havoc for humans the Infectious Diseases Society of America reports that drug-resistant infections kill nearly 100,000 Americans each year and estimates that the financial burden to the healthcare system is as high as $34 billion annually. But the National Pork Producers Council Chief Veterinarian Liz Wagstrom insists that giving antibiotics to farm animals doesn't endanger humans. She says the council has examined the risks. The last risk assessment that was
8: done on penicillin said between zero and one person per century might have a disease that would be untreatable or difficult to treat because of penicillin resistance due to use of that compound in animal agriculture.
7: Industry officials say the problem is with doctors over-prescribing antibiotics to humans. But according to the FDA, 7 million pounds of antibiotics were given to humans in 2009, while 28 million pounds were sold for use on farm animals that same year. Glenn Morris says this means that physicians find themselves in a war with bacteria, trying to constantly stay one step ahead. And as in most wars, a winner starts to emerge.
4: What we are seeing, as I look back over the last several decades, is that Antibiotic therapies, which worked just fine 10 years ago, even five years ago, now suddenly we're having to go to further drug combinations. And some of the older antibiotics that we had stopped using because they had significant side effects, now sometimes they're the only thing that will work. It's tougher because your options are more limited.
7: Resistant bacteria travel from the farm to the general human population in a variety of ways. One route is through farm workers but the broader path is through our food. A 2011 study in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases found that nearly half of the meat and poultry in U.S. grocery stores is contaminated with staph infection, and more than half of those bacteria were multi-drug resistant. When meat is properly cooked, staph is usually killed, but there's still a risk of contamination. Morris says it's possible to reverse this trend, He gives the European Union as an example where non-medical uses of antibiotics were limited starting in the early 1990s and then banned in 2006. Since then, he says, there have been clear improvements in antibiotic resistance in Europe.
4: What Europe has clearly shown is that you can still raise chickens just fine or pigs or cattle without the growth enhancers. There are data suggesting that you do have to be a little more careful and the way you raise the animals. Using antibiotics gives you the ability to crowd animals together a little bit more and to have practices in your animal agriculture, which may not be quite as sanitary.
7: But others argue when Europe pulled the plug on the non-medical uses of antibiotics on animals, there were unintended consequences. In Denmark, the hogs got sick and the use of medicinal antibiotics increased. Scott Hurd is a professor of veterinary medicine at Iowa State University and the former deputy undersecretary of food safety at the USDA. He looked carefully into what happened in Denmark.
4: What was interesting and I think surprising was that the amount of product used to treat sick pigs actually doubled after the ban. What that tells me is those preventive uses were indeed important.
7: Preventative medicine is important to animals, says Herd. So important, their use outweighs potential resistance. And supporters of prophylactic use of drugs, including Liz Wagstrom from the National Pork Producers Council, say without antibiotics, it will be harder and more costly to raise animals.
8: What we would end up with is more sick pigs, less efficient growth. We likely contribute to a higher cost of food. So I think as the pork industry, without this idea that we're going to improve public health, it makes having more sick pigs and a higher cost of production a difficult concept to handle.
7: The Natural Resources Defense Council won their suit against penicillin and tetracycline, and the FDA is deciding whether to appeal the court's ruling. But as farmers turn to other antibiotics, the NRDC is not far behind in filing additional suits. In a second brief, the organization has asked the FDA to limit all non-therapeutic drugs on animals. A ruling is expected in the next few weeks. For Living on Earth, I'm Jessica Elise Kern.
1: Scientists now have a new weapon in the ongoing war between evolving bacteria and antibiotic drugs. It's virtual reality. In computer games, the simulated environments put you in the midst of imaginary worlds. At Virginia Tech, researchers have created a computer model to help health officials tackle pandemics in the real world. Reporter Prachi Patel toured the place where virtual reality and real threat meet and has our story as part of the IEEE Spectrum program responding to disasters from prediction to recovery. In
0: 1976, a swine flu virus infected military recruits in Fort Dix, New Jersey. One man died, but the bug never spread beyond the base. It just disappeared on its own. Fast forward 33 years.
5: The World Health Organization has declared a swine flu pandemic as the disease continues to spread around the world.
0: The 2009 H1N1 virus was completely different. It tore around the globe, infecting 61 million people and killing 12,000. Viruses and bacteria are notoriously hard to predict. So how do you tackle a pandemic? Well, one way to understand how a disease could spread is to computerize the situation and see what happens with an artificial population. During the 2009 H1N1 outbreak, U.S. health officials used a computer model built by researchers at Virginia Tech. The model is called Episymdemics. Think of it as an artificial America built inside a supercomputer. Christopher Barrett is one of the project's leaders.
3: Episandemics provides a way to generate a real-world social network from detailed modeling of individual activities, and um, you can uh, spread a disease over those individuals that are interacting in that network.
0: First, the researchers built a synthetic population. They used census data to mimic the real population of, say, Chicago or all of America. Next, they assigned daily activities to each artificial person, again based on actual social surveys. Then, they added models of people's movements.
3: So if, if they were going to drive, for example, you might need models of traffic, detailed traffic with every individual in a vehicle and, or in a bus or something so that you can figure out where they are, who they're next to.
0: What they end up with is a very large, real-world social network that changes with time. Finally, they incorporated models of various diseases such as the common flu, swine flu, and HIV based on how they spread and how infectious they are. Now you can introduce a few infected individuals and see how a disease spreads.
9: The part that is also innovative in these class of models is a representation of behaviors and how individuals react in face of diseases.
0: Computer scientist Madhav Marathi helped create Episandemics. He points out a key innovation, its adaptiveness to human behavior.
9: The individual behaviors... The disease and the social contact network actually all change in response to each other. For instance, I decide not to go to work or I decide to get antivirals or decide not to send my child to work. This, in effect, changes how the disease continues to move on this fabric of the social contact network that has just been changed.
0: Of course, the simulation can't tell exactly what's going to happen in a pandemic. But public health officials can tweak the model, say introduce a school closure or make a vaccine available and see how it affects things. That gives them a good overall understanding of what can happen and what can go wrong. In 2009, for instance, Episendemics helped government agencies plan a counterattack.
9: So the question that we were posed along with other groups was, if you are given this small quota of vaccines, how do you decide whom to vaccinate? And remember that the decision has to be done under the under the following different criteria. How many people do you save? How much control you can achieve from the disease? What's the potential economic impact? How can you save critical workers so that the society keeps functioning, and so on and so forth.
0: Different decisions, of course, might have led to different outcomes. In the end, computer models like these might not stop a disease in its tracks, but they can certainly help save lives. For Living on Earth, this is Prachi Patel.
1: Our story is part of the IEEE Spectrum National Science Foundation program Responding to Disasters, From Prediction to Recovery. For more information, go to our website, LOE.org. The month of April is many things. Poet T.S. Eliot termed it the cruelest month. And it is, after all, tax time. But in April, we also celebrate Earth Day. That would be on the 22nd. And Poetry Month. To mark both planet and poetry during April, we have a series of offerings. Here's our first.
10: I'm Janice Harrington. Something that I heard um, many years ago, which struck me, was someone who said, we never see a tree. You might see an oak, you might see a willow, but no one has seen a tree And it made me realize how I go through a day looking at things as classes of objects rather than as specific entities. And there's another marvelous um, saying from the Luba people of Africa. It's a grave offense to them if you do not greet them when you see them because to do so is to say that they are ghost and so when i go through the world or in my writing i'm trying to greet what's around me through that specificity through their name so that they exist and if they exist if nature exists i exist what there was pine catalpa pin oak persimmon but not tree hummingbird hoot owl martin Crow, but not bird. Canis, honeysuckle, coxcomb, rose, but not flower. Wood smoke, corn, dust, outhouse, but not stench. A spider spinning in a rain barrel, the silver dipper by the back porch. Tadpoles shimmying against a concrete bank But not silence A cotton row A bucket lowered into a well A red dirt road A winging crow But not distance A rooster crowing Cows lowing in the evening Wasp humming beneath the eaves Hounds baying Hot grease But not Music My mother running away at fifteen, my grandmother lifting a truck to save a life, an uncle at Pearl Harbor, Webster sitting at the back of the bus when he looked as white as they did, but not stories. The entrails of a slaughtered sow, the child born with a goat's face, the cousin laid on a railroad track, the fire that burned it all, but not death. This poem, a snuff tin sated with the hair of all our dead, my mother's nighttime talks with her dead father, my great grandmother's clothes, passed down, passed down, but not memory.
1: Janice Harrington teaches creative writing at the University of Illinois. Her poem, What There Was, is from her book, Even the Hollow My Body Made is Gone, by BOA Editions. Coming up, two very different journeys into the Amazon jungle. One filled with poisonous snakes and bloodthirsty ants in order to document a remote tribe. The other, easy breezy, a new virtual voyage through the rainforest. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
5: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living
1: on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The Amazon is the world's largest and biologically richest rainforest. It covers an area nearly the size of the continental United States and spans nine South American countries. The tropical climate is wet and warm, and the land is laced with hundreds of rivers, fast and deep. The combination creates an ecosystem unlike any other. The Amazon region is home to more than two and a half million species of insects, tens of thousands of plants and animals, many found nowhere else. It's a veritable Noah's Ark for people, too. Archaeologists say people have lived in the Amazon for more than 11,000 years. After the Portuguese conquered the land in the 16th century, many indigenous people died from Old World diseases or were killed by the invaders. But some tribes deep in the rainforest remain undiscovered and unconquered. Unconquered in Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes is the title of the new book by journalist Scott Wallace. It's based on his assignment for the National Geographic Society. And Scott, welcome to Living on
8: Earth. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: I want to begin a 100 years ago, back in 1910. You write about the Indian Protection Service that got started in Brazil, And the first motto of the Protection Service?
8: Yes, die if you must, but never kill. The Indian Protection Service in Brazil was founded by Colonel Cândido Rondon. The motto was um, kind of encapsulated the spirit of the Protection Service, which was, you know, the people that we are in charge of protecting should never die on our watch. But there was a long history
1: of uh, the Portuguese and other explorers coming into the Amazon and well, essentially exterminating the tribes.
8: Yeah, and Rondon really was a departure from that tradition. He led the policy in a new direction from plunder and exploitation and annihilation to one that really was a humanitarian effort. Let's fast forward uh, in
1: your book. It started about 10 years ago. You get a call, last-minute call, from National Geographic saying, hey, can you pack up your gear and go to the Amazon?
8: That's exactly right. They wanted—actually, National Geographic was interested in doing a profile of Sidney Posuelo, who is the main character of my book and the leader of this expedition I joined. And they wanted a profile of Posuelo because he had actually taken Rondon's policy, which was, you know, go to the deep bush to contact the Indians to save them, to saving these last uncontacted tribes without contacting them and Pozuelo. Posuello was about to embark on an open-ended journey into the deep Amazon to track one such uncontacted tribe in order to protect and bolster protection for its lands and for their way of life. This guy, Sidney Posuello, what a character he is. (laughs) He's got this jungle hat. He
1: wears a speedo swimsuit, flip-flops, and then he charges into the jungle, and he knows every inch
8: of this place. He is uh, an amazing explorer, but also a tempestuous, brooding, unpredictable, explosive character. Uh, Great for literature, not so great to spend three months with in the middle of nowhere. But indeed, he knew what he was doing, where he was taking us, and how he was going to get us out of there alive. So, Scott, what's Sidney Pozuelo's goal on this trip? I mean, if he doesn't want to contact the Indians, why go to where they live? This is um, part of the fundamental work that the Department of Isolated Indians does is to try to ascertain the dimensions of the territory that an uncontacted tribe uses. The only way you can protect an uncontacted tribe and keep it uncontacted is by preserving, conserving the pristine rainforest where those people roam. Why not just leave them the hell alone? There is a good case to be made for that, except that the pressure on these lands throughout the Amazon is incredibly intense. Everyone wants to get at these territories for the timber, for the oil and gas underneath the soil, for the gold, for the land itself to clear it for agriculture. And the most effective way of keeping those kinds of intrusions at bay is to prove Beyond a doubt, that these lands are occupied by indigenous people who have been there since time immemorial. You had a perfectly miserable
1: trip. The narco traffickers that were in the area, right. uh, You know the the lumbermen, the miners, the rubber tappers, let alone the snakes, the caiman. Yeah, there's. <laughs> <laughs> you're laughing, but in the book, it's a horror show.
8: There are hazards at every step. I was surprised. Out of all these things, it was the ants that got to you. The ants—they are everywhere, and they are nasty. We ended up camping on a number of occasions in um, areas overrun by ants. Those the only places we could find, and they would—their nests would be high up in the trees. And so, wherever we slung our hammocks, we'd soon find um, our hammocks invaded by ants, very nasty, vicious, uh, biting ants. You'd, you'd try to cross a log, and, um, you know, your hand would be uh, beset by ants, and you'd look down, and there was, like, blood streaming down your hand. Scott, I want you to
1: read a passage from your book. It's on page 85. It starts with,
8: I'd been completely on board. I'd have been completely on board when it came to Posuelo's quest, but now I was left wondering. What exactly were we doing here? Five men surrounded by a boundless forest, crisscrossed by drug traffickers and head-bashing tribesmen. Another five even further upriver, only static blasting on the two-way radio. If Posuelo was capable of a lapse of judgment when it came to the expedition's security, what did that say about his larger quest to save Brazilians' Indians? Was he, as some critics alleged, attempting to play God with the indigens, harboring them in a kind of exotic theme park for his own gratification while denying them the benefits of modern life? It was far too early to formulate any kind of authoritative answers. But one thing was certain. There was no way Posuela would attempt any of it without an exceptionally powerful inner voice, some would say ego, that called him to the quest. And
1: you follow this guy three months
8: into the jungle. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, insanely. But, uh, yeah, he was um, he was the guy to follow. And he brings you out alive. That was the thing. You know, there were several moments, of course, um, every day for quite a while where I wondered if we were going to get out of there alive. Well, you did have a magic letter from the
1: National Geographic Society. And you right. call it the Dazzler.
8: Yes. The Dazzler is a... Um, letter of assignment from the National Geographic Society that is meant to impress. It's got ribbons on it, tricolor ribbons and a gold seal and impresses upon any um, person who happens to read it the urgency and the import of the bearer's mission.
1: So you and Sidney Pozzuolo and the men head
8: off into the darkest corners of northwest um, uh, Amazon. Fast on the Peru border, this is one of the most remote areas in the Amazon in the world, probably one of the areas of most difficult access, which is where these uncontacted groups whose lands we're going to explore, the Aero people, are hiding. Um, that's how they've managed to remain uncontacted into the 21st century is by withdrawing, retreating into these most inaccessible redoubts of the Amazon.
1: Now, they're called the
8: Arrow People
1: because it's not that they've not had any contact. People know that they have these
8: poisonous arrows and these bows, so they have been contacted, yeah? We don't really know. There's so little known about them. We don't know their name. We don't know what they call themselves. The Arrow People is the name that others have pinned on them because of their disposition to use their arrows to repel intrusions into their territory. To that extent, there has been contact, one of flying bullets in one direction and flying arrows in the other. But that's it. There has never been any peaceful contact. So we still don't know what language they speak or what ethnicity they are. We just know that they are implacable warriors who resort to using their arrows to defend their forests from intrusions. Yeah, you're right. No one knows about the violence perpetuated against the Indians because it has no echo here. Their screams are smothered by the jungle. That's right. There's so many uncontacted groups that have been wiped out before their, their existence was ever documented. So how many uncontacted tribes do you think are out there? So I'll told maybe somewhere around 40 to 60 uncontacted groups in the Amazon. And so part of the quest here is to document their existence, hopefully for the purpose of perpetuating their existence.
1: Scott Wallace's new book is called The Unconquered, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. Well, Scott, thank you very much.
8: It's a terrific book. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. A few years back, I traveled
1: through the Amazon, trekking through the forest and traveling by boat along muddy tributaries. It was amazing. And while I didn't encounter bloodthirsty ants, deadly snakes, or poisonous arrows, I did nearly get eaten alive by some unseen insects. But for those of you who want to experience the vast Amazon rainforest, but prefer your adventures from an armchair perspective, pull up a seat, relax, and click on the latest offering from Google Maps. Karen Tuxin Bettman is a geodata strategist at the Internet Search Company and project lead for Google Street View in the Amazon. Karen, welcome to Living on Earth.
11: Thanks for having me, Bruce. So, how does this work? Well, if you go to Google Maps at maps.google.com and you scroll into the Amazon Basin, zoom in to the state of Amazonas, then you can drag the little Street View Pegman onto the map, um, onto the Rio Negro or to one of several communities where we collected Street View data or one of the forest trails, and. Once you're there, you can click forward in the panorama, you can click backwards, you can click up, click down and move all around and explore the forest, explore the river and walk around the five communities that we collected data.
1: Okay, well, I'm on the site and I'm clicking and I, oh, that's cool. I'm at at the trail entrance to Amazon Rainforest. Wow, look at that. You can just kind of feel like you're walking through the rainforest.
11: That's right. You can just click forward. You can double-click to move forward in space and to zoom in on a, on a specific tree. You can look up. on In one area, you can look up and you can see a swarm of dragonflies flying up overhead, and then you can you know, drag the Pegman to a completely different area, maybe along the river. And you can float down the river and see submerged trees and flooded forests. And even one area, you can see a little tree frog climbing onto the camera. Uh, so there's quite a lot to see. And it's just stunning imagery. And I, I mean, it, it really is just like you're there.
1: So I feel like I'm walking through the forest. If I click... It feels like I'm walking in the trail. How did you make this photo?
11: Well, when we went down to the Amazon in August, we took two different pieces of equipment. The first one was a Street View trike, and we mounted the trike on a boat, and we floated around and collected imagery with the Street View trike mounted on the roof of the boat. Then we also had a trike that we pedaled around the communities.
1: When you say trike, you mean a, a tricycle?
11: That's right. The Street View trike was created to take Street View to places with no roads. But for the Forest Trail, we actually used a different equipment. We used a camera on a tripod, and the camera had a fisheye lens. And we took photographs in four different directions that we then stitched together these different photographs into a 360-degree panorama.
1: Why did you go in August?
11: Why did we go in August? That's a good question. I mean, this entire project was envisioned by our nonprofit partner, Amazonas Sustainable Foundation. So they wanted to capture August, which was at kind of a good balance between the wet and dry seasons. And they wanted to be able to go up into the tributaries, up into the Rio Negro tributaries, so that people could see the flooded forests for themselves.
1: So, how Could this possibly help the people and the environment in the Amazon?
11: The Amazonas Sustainable Foundation sees this project as applying technology to forest conservation and allowing people to see the imagery on Google Maps and Google Earth for themselves so that they can get to know the forest a little bit and understand what they might want to work at conserving.
0: Where does
1: the technology go? How much more can you do?
11: Google's primary goal with Street View is to create a digital mirror of the entire world. And we want to basically make it so that armchair environmentalists can actually visit these places before and after and um, with a mobile phone, possibly during their travels, and make getting around easier. Also, understanding different places and the culture and the environment that exist there. And so I think where this technology goes is just further, more places that have invited us to come or that might invite us in the future.
1: Well, Karen, thank you so very much.
11: Oh, you're so very welcome.
1: Karen Tuxen Bettman is a geodata strategist at Google. To take their virtual voyage through the Amazon, click on our website, LOE.org. Splish, splash, they're taking a bath. Migrating birds take a quick dip at the watering holes in south-central Nebraska, and then they'll continue to wing it along the central flyway. Bird Notes' Michael Stein has more. For 20,000
12: years, spring rains and melting snow have filled the playas of the rainwater basin of south-central Nebraska. Carved by glacial winds at the end of the last ice age, the playas are shallow depressions the warmth of spring fills with abundant life. As winter ends, 10 million waterfowl rest and feed here before continuing north. <laughs> the seasonal wetlands of the rainwater basin form a 150 mile wide funnel for waterbirds migrating from the Gulf Coast and point south to northern breeding grounds. The basin is the narrowest neck of the great migratory route we call the Central Flyway. In recent years, the number of snow geese stopping in the region during spring has risen dramatically to more than three million birds. A third of North America's northern pintails rely on the food-rich habitat here. Birds of 27 species use the wetlands. So do half a million sandhill cranes. Fat reserves acquired during their stay here can mean the difference between success and failure in nesting. No other stopover between wintering and nesting grounds can replace the combination of wetlands and grain fields found in the rainwater basin.
1: I'm Michael Stein. And for some photos of the migrating birds in our bird note, hop on over to our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth, guar gum, made from a little legume, goes big time.
4: You know, every home in the U.S.
1: is going to have guar in some form or fashion in the pantry or in the refrigerator up on the shelf. And it's also used by the ton in hydraulic fracturing. The guar gum bubble next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in a rusting relic from World War II. Winds howl through a hangar at Wendover Airfield in Utah's Great Salt Lake Desert. The windows are smashed, the walls rusted. Once the hangar was home to the Enola Gay, the B 29 bomber that dropped the first atomic bomb on Japan. And by the way, the Enola Gay hangar is now being restored thanks to a Save America's Treasure grant from the National Park Service. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom Eileen Balinski, Ingrid Lobat, Helen Palmer, and Ike Shreeskandaraja, with help from Megan Miner, Gabriela Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Mary Bates and Sophie Golden. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Alison Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And don't forget our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Living on Earth. That's just one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer.
5: I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Go Forward Fund, and PaxWorld Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.